I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. With the NBA draft just being completed, our guest today brings outstanding experience, both on the intercollegiate and professional level. He was a head coach at seven different Division I schools, winning the NIT tournament and making it to the NCAA tournament. He and his roommate were two of the top basketball players in the state of North Carolina. Buzz Peterson, our guest, has become one of Michael Jordan's most important confidants as it relates to the Charlotte Hornets, the team that he owns. You will hear in our story how Buzz and Michael met and how that relationship grew. But most importantly, Buzz is an incredible leader, relationship builder, and really concerned about the players the student-athletes that he coached. He and his wife, Jan, built tremendous relationships with the players, trying to help them be most successful in their endeavors. It's our pleasure to welcome the Assistant General Manager of the Charlotte Hornets, Buzz Peterson. Welcome, friends. You've heard of walkthroughs. We're, we're doing a walkthrough here today. <laughs> Somehow we had technical difficulties, and uh, our guest was hospitable enough to uh, volunteer his time as they're preparing for the draft. But but as we circle back to the early 1980s, and, and we look at North Carolina, and we go to Asheville, and we go to Wilmington, there are two outstanding college prospects. One's name's Buzz Peterson, and the other one, sort of unknown. And his name was Michael Jordan. And all of a sudden, these two men became friends. And the journey and how this began happened circumstance. So, Buzz, talk about how you and Michael came to be. Okay, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I don't know if the North Carolina coaches set this up or not. I'm not sure. But we were sweet mates. Uh, in Granville Towers and, and Chapel Hill, the summer of in June of 1980. This is before your senior year. Yes, before senior year of high school. And I was with, in the room with my high school teammate, Randy Shepard, and we're sitting there and somebody knocks on our bathroom door. Well, the bathroom connected rooms in Granville Towers, and it was a guy about my size, and he introduced himself as Mike. And then behind him was another guy named Leroy, Leroy Smith, Michael's teammate in high school. So he played at UNC Charlotte. So we started talking a little bit. He says, hey, I've heard about you. I said, really? He said, yeah. He says, uh, you've been in several camps already. I said, yeah. He said, uh, how'd you get into BC camp, which was run by Bolton and Cronauer? And, and uh, I said, uh, my high school coach said he got three uh, letters from Division One coaches to get, us, to get me in. And he says, oh, really? 
He said, where else did you go? I said, I'm going to Clemson's camp and I'm going to five-star after this. He said, how'd you get in five-star? I said, well, my coach helped me get in. And he said, well, I've got to get in there. And I said, well, I'm sure the coaches here can help you or somebody can't even tell you what to do. So anyway, what was interesting about that week was I never saw Mike play. Never saw him play. He was in another gym with my teammate, Randy. I was in a gym with Leroy, his teammate. And uh, about after, I guess, Tuesday morning, whatever, Randy and I sitting there talking, I said, hey, how's, how's it to play with Mike? He says, well, it's easy to throw alley-oops to him. He goes and gets him everything. He's a great offensive rebounder, but he's like a 6'4 post player. And so he doesn't really do much outside, but he's really good around the board. So we talked a little bit after camp and, and they left one on their way. And I told Michael, I, I'll see you in, in uh, a couple of weeks up in five star. And when I got up there, you could hear kind of the buzz that he was, he was already there a week before I got there and he stayed another week. So he ended up doing like two weeks. And I think he was like co-MVP the week before I got there. And, uh, so there was a lot of people talking about him, all the chit-chat and everything. So I knew at that time I could tell he was getting better and better. Uh, there was a lot of college coaches, Lefter Brazil and his bunch were following him around the outside door courts there, Robert Morris uh, College, everything, so for university. That's when that relationship started. And we continued on the phone talking before our senior year. We kind of made this, you know, promise that we'd go play the same school. Well, I didn't realize that. You know, it'd be competition, really. I mean, I thought, you know, here's the inside player, and we could always play together. So, but the time he committed North Carolina in November of our senior year, I probably verbally committed to Kentucky. And then I told my high school coach one morning, then the next day, Coach Smith was at my house. Between Coach Smith and Michael calling me, I had no choice to go to Carolina. But, I, you know, I grew up a Carolina fan anyway. So, you know, I stayed with my word, and I told him that – uh yeah, yeah, we were. I did say we'd play with each other and everything, so we became teammates, and that's where it became roommates. And I tease everybody all the time. I say, you know, we always make a lot of mistakes in our lives and decisions we make. There's one thing I did right. I picked the right roommate. You picked the right roommate and the, and the right wife. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you about that. <laughs> I've those been blessed two, there. Those are two pretty important choices. That's right. That's right. Let's, let's circle back to how you got into basketball. Oh, it, it, it's interesting. Um, you know, my, my dad is not really a big sports fan. He worked for his father. So it, it, it was a, a grandfather had a retail business in the Southeast United States, like 77 plus stores. So my dad was pretty pressured to be to do, to run the business there, help his dad out. And my mom played a little basketball. Um, but they told me when I was young, real young, two, three years old, that I would take trash cans out of the rooms and I put them in the hallway and I would shoot a basketball in there. And I just kind of got into it that way. And she would take me, or my dad would take me to the games at Lenore Ryan College, which that's where Rick Barnes was playing at the time. So I might have been eight, nine, ten years old until we moved to Asheville. So I go back a long way with Rick Barnes in that, that sense. I used to watch him play and everything. So I always tease him. I said, my mom, you just sit me on the first row and you're passing so bad you knocked the popcorn out of my, my hands and everything. Just fell in love with it. And um, I remember in sixth grade, I, I loved all sports. And my PE teacher at the time, we were doing some basketball drill. You know, the PE teachers kill kill time with the students and everything. And I went through these cones, laid it up, did it again. He pulled me to the side and he says, hey, you've done this before, haven't you? I said, uh, I think so. I mean, in my house, whatever. He says, hey, go on this left side and do it again. Do the same thing. So I did it. And I laid up the left hand and everything. He said, hmm. So class was dismissed. He says, when you get dressed, come back. Uh, I want to talk to you. So I went back. He says, 
you really love the sport? I said, I love it. I love football, though. Also, I love baseball. But you know, he said, but I, I think I can't imagine, you know, you're better no sports than, than basketball. I said, I don't know. He said, I, I do love football. He said, what's your goal? I said, be a McDonald's All-American and to get a Division One offer when I'm in ninth, 10th grade. He said, let me tell you something. If you stick with me and you do all these drills and you want to work, I'll make sure you get that. And so what happened, though, after that, he left and went to Hope County High School down in Rayford, North Carolina, where Tubby Smith and Kelvin Sampson were his assistants. And I went down and visited him and everything and stayed in touch. He came back my sophomore year in high school. The drills he showed me, I worked on them. I had some teammates that uh, were, would work on them. And, and then, uh, you know, you, you want to reach those goals. And uh, I was very, very blessed to reach the goals of the McDonald's All-American and then get some Division One offers. So that's kind of how I fell into it. I, I love football. But I was only like 6'3", 165 pounds, I think it's my sophomore year or junior in high school. And I remember the football coach came to me and said, look, you have opportunity to start for us if you want to. And, uh, and I said, well, okay, I, I may look at it, but I wasn't sure. But I was just too skinny. <laughs> Somebody, to, you know, cracked me in half. So I, I said, I know I got a zero and a one sport. So I played baseball one more year, and then I concentrated on the basketball. So you make that decision, you, you, you go to North Carolina, you and Michael end up being roommates, and you win a national championship. Yeah, you know, it's it interesting. We get in there, and, uh, and we're battling. I had a stress fracture before our first exhibition game, so I was out. And then he became one of, I think at that time, one of three or four freshmen ever started Carolina. One of us had to start, and it was obvious. I mean, we played the McDonald's All-American game going in our, our freshman year, and he had 30 points out in Wichita, Kansas. And I just kept feeding the ball and getting it to him. But he's – I knew he, he was going to be pretty special then. He's going to get better and better. But, uh, yeah, win national championship, the whole scenario, he, he Michael got better. In a championship game, some of the drives he had lip against Big Patrick or, or the left hand was pretty special. But what was interesting about the last play, if you've seen it before, I'm sure a lot of people have seen it, Coach Thompson went to the zone. And – and he knew what Coach Smith would run against his own, which is Coach Smith's T-game offense. Well, Coach Thompson was Coach Smith's uh, assistant in the Olympics in 1980. Or was it 80? I believe it was 76 maybe. I don't remember what year it was. But anyway, he knew. So Coach Thompson said, if we lose to North Carolina and they make a shot, it can't be Perkins on the elbow or Worthy on the low block. It's got to be the freshman to hit a shot on the weak side. So you probably can leave that open, but cover the elbows and blocks in the T-game. Well, Jimmy Black reversed the basketball. Michael took the shot. I was kind of, you know, you know, Michael had a line drive. It wasn't much arch, but the, guy, he, the big heart he has and everything. And I was sitting on the bench, and that thing was going. I had a direct line from the basket to where he released it. I was like, it was on line, but I said, you know, maybe it's going to come right back to him. And it went in, and it just all – everything went crazy. Then they got the ball, and, you know, they turned it over to us and everything. So uh, it was a special moment. And I'll never forget, we're walking around after that. And he says, that shot I hit, he says, uh, that's pretty big. I said, yeah, it's just going to, as time goes on, Michael, that thing's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So, uh, but after that, his confidence level went to another level. It just, it just peaked. And, and we were playing pickup ball in the summertime. I guess pros, guys and pros at that time were like maybe Al Wood, Walter Davis, stuff like that. They struggled. Michael could play with them. He could play with him. You could see it then. I always tell people this. There's one guy that I thought did the best job on him because Michael probably feared him a little bit just because who he was and everything was a guy named Lawrence Taylor. 
LT, everybody knows how tremendous athlete LT is. I mean, east to west, unbelievably quick, gets up in the air, can jump, love to compete. And LT could guard Michael about as well as anybody. And I don't know if Michael want to get away from him or what, because he'd go crazy if he lost. But what an athlete Lawrence Taylor was. That must have been some pickup games if Lawrence Taylor was in there playing. Oh, yeah. We didn't let many people play with us, but we let him because, I mean, he demanded to. So, <laughs> uh, But he was strong, quick, can move. Oh, I, I, it's just one of the best athletes I know if I, if I think I've ever been. Lynn Bias was a tremendous athlete I think been on the floor with, but uh, this guy was something else in pickup games. So talk about your career now. I mean, you, you finish your senior year. How do you decide coaching is going to happen? Well, it's kind of it interesting. I don't, I don't know if it's a mistake or not. I, I got drafted by Cleveland. I always say it was a favor that uh, George Carl did for Coach Smith. And uh, in the seventh round, I think George was at Cleveland at the time. And so anyway, I, I you know, got cut. Uh, went to CBA a little bit. I didn't like that. Went back to school, worked on sort of master's. Uh, got an opportunity to go to Belgium, went there for about a half a season, came back, talking to Coach Smith, and he said, what do you want to do? I said, Coach, I want to be like a, a college scout. I want to go see college players. I want to scout them for the pros. He said, Buzz, I, I would love to help you, but I don't think I can get that for you. He said, the reason is because of the experience. There's a lot of former coaches that are doing that for teams, and I just don't know if they're going to take somebody your, you know, your age. So what I did, though, I helped a guy named Bob Gibbons out with All-Star Sports Scouting Service who did high school kids. So I, I drove around the East Coast, whatever, and, and went out west a little bit and you know, seeing high school players and rate, you know, ranking them and everything. And that's when I met a guy named Tom Apke, A-P-K-E. Coach Apke was uh, at App State at the time. He had been at Creighton, Colorado, very successful coach there. And he offered me what, what they call a part-time assistant coach then. A part-time assistant coach, really, you work full-time, but you get part-time pay. Right. And uh, i never forget, I lived in Blowing Rock, and I, I made uh, $533 a month for nine months. My rent was 500 And i never forget my dad telling me, he said, look here, son, I will, your mother and I will help you for three years. He said, after that, you're going to have to get a real job. <laughs> I said, this is a real job. He says, son, how can a real job be when your life depends on an 18-year-old's decision-making? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's, that, that is, think about that. So, uh, and, and at the time, it, one ear after the other, I didn't listen to him. But as I got into coaching deeper into it, well, he was right. He, he was exactly right that that is a tough profession in coaching when you're, you know, when you're pen- depending on people like that making decisions for you, you know, as an 18 year old. But yeah, that's how I got started. App State was there for two years. Went to East Tennessee State with Les Robinson. Les goes to NC State. Well, then there's an NC State, North Carolina. He says you better call Coach Smith to figure out, you know, what. It, and that time I got there, Todd Turner was the athletic director. Eric Hyman, his first assistant, was an offensive lineman at North Carolina and became the AD at South Carolina and I think Miami, Ohio, and Texas A&M. So I went there for three years. And, you know, I, I felt like I'd been in the North Carolina area and I wanted to broaden my horizon a little bit. I wanted to get to know more people in a different part of the country. And a guy by the name of Paul Houlihan was the AD at North Carolina. I think Paul's with the Sugar Bowl now or used to be and Paul wanted me to come over there as assistant under Jan Van Bridekal. Where? At Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt. Okay. Yeah. So we went. Jen and I took off and uh 
been a member for three years. And it's, 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 it's interesting. It's like I told a young man in our organization yesterday. He's interviewing. I said, hey, let me tell you something. You're young, and the relationships you're building here and, and right now, when you go to some other place, those relationships you're building now are very important because it may come back around where that organization you first working for may hire you again. So I always remember that when I got to – when I left Appalachian State, I had a lot of good people I became friends with. So that job came open. I went back there in 96 as a head coach. Stayed there four years. We had some success. Won the conference title three times. Final year, we got into the NCAA tournament. I'm thinking, you know, what else can I do? You know, back then you didn't have guys in a power five jumping to the pros. Everybody, it was it was a four-year commitment. Every once in a while you may see somebody, but at least three years. So coaches were able to build chemistry and build their teams up year by year. And I just didn't think what else we could do at App State because we were 14 seed. Could we upset people? I, I just didn't know. So I, want, I interviewed at Georgia, Georgia Tech, Arkansas, Little Rock, St. Louis, a lot of these different schools during my last two years there. And after the fourth year, and it was in the middle of June, I, hadn't had it, I didn't have anything. And I said, well, I'm going to do this again. i got to turn this thing over again at App State, build it up again. What happened was the domino effect had happened. Izzo turns down Atlanta Hawks. Lon Kruger takes it from Illinois. And then Bill Self from Tulsa goes to Illinois. And that's and then I end up going to Tulsa. And it was interesting how it happened. Didn't know Judy McLeod, the athletic director at all. And she's now the commissioner of the Commerce USA. And Judy was pretty interested in the situation at Duke. The assistant coach is there. So she called Shashevsky. I guess he had heard that I had interviewed and a couple other people. So they went through a list of about two or three names, and, and she didn't mention my name. He said, I, I thought that uh, you're interested in the, the guy App State. And she says, we are, but I didn't think that would be fair to ask about him because of the rivalry between Duke and Carolina. He says, no. This is what she told me. She said, no, that's not the case in this situation. If you can hire him, you better get him right now. And that's, that's, that's how I ended up getting a job at Tulsa. Uh, it, it was it was late because they'd gone through the process a little bit. I happened to get out there by a family friend of, of a guy named Bob Engel, Engel's Grocery Stores in western part of North Carolina and Georgia and South Carolina. He flew me out, flew back. Jan and the kids picked me up in Asheville Airport, and we were going to Hilton Head for vacation. And, you know, you got screaming kids in the back seat, all this stuff. And my phone, you know, the phone reception back then is a lot different, you know, yeah. so – they were trying to call me halfway through this drive, which is probably about four and a half, five hours. And I didn't hear the phone. I didn't check my phone until we got to Hilton Head. I, Jan took off the grocery store. I had the three kids. And now I've got like this numerous calls from Tulsa from Judy. So I call her with all the screaming in the background. And she says, hey, you don't want this job? I said, why you say this? She says, I called you like four times. And I said, Judy, here's the reason why I explained it to her. So Jen and I, the next day, took off uh, out of Savannah, Georgia, and flew to Tulsa, and we uh, took the job there. There for one year, won NIT championship. Bill Self had a heck of players returning, and had a lot a lot returning at, when I left. And, um, you know, after that, I went to Tennessee, was there for four years, lost my job, uh, was, went through five presidents in four years at Tennessee, uh, went through a different uh, AD change, and uh, – but at the time I was at Tulsa, I'm sitting there staring at Wake Forest, South Carolina, and Tennessee. Three really good jobs. And so we took the Tennessee job, and uh, 
37 years old, thought I knew everything, and, and, and things didn't go quite our way, but it was a great experience. Your dad gave you some advice, though. Yeah, it, it, my dad went to Tennessee, and I have family from La Follette down to Athens. My dad tell me, he told me, he said, look, uh, I know you're interested in Tennessee job, but let me, let me explain something to you. You're, you're, you know, your ego is going to put to the side. He said, you're not going to be the first. He called it fiddle. You're not going to be the first fiddle. I said, why? He said, you know how football is because I grew up going to games over there. One, we go to one or two games a year, and the seats would be top rowing up, way up on by the side of the river. He said, you're not going to be second. He said, there's lady ball basketball. And uh, Pat Summers done a tremendous job. You're not going to overcome that. He says, I hate to tell you, you're not going to be third fiddle. I said, what do you mean, Dad? He says, there's spring football. And I said, okay. So, so in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, maybe I can turn this thing around a little bit and make it, you know, third or second fiddle, whatever. And uh, But, yeah, I had a great experience there. I embraced the football. We put the checkerboard on the baseline of the basketball court. I think they still, I think Rick still has it there. Uh, I embraced Pat Summit. Why not? She's been, she was one of the best of all time to coach basketball. Uh, she taught me a lot. She taught me about the value of a relationship with a student athlete. That's what she taught me more than anything. It's just building that relationship because she said at the end of the day, when you're on that court and it's in a late game situation, they got to believe in you and you got to believe in them. So you need that kind of relationship. So she really turned the way I approach things a lot. I spent a lot of time with the players uh, as much as I could just forming that, that coach-player relationship bond. And that's why I think she was so successful. So, anyway, after Tennessee, I want to keep coaching. A guy by the name of Alan LaForce was a women's coach at Coastal Carolina. I went down there for two years. And then Michael gets the Charlotte Bobcats basketball presence job. And uh, so I come to work for him for two years. I just had the blood in me to coach. It's you coach, you know how it is. You're down with it, and you're you're working drills, you're doing things. It's just something about it. You know, I've always said, if I had a perfect world, I'd want Monday through Friday to practice. I'd want Saturday a scrimmage, and I'd take Sunday off. No games, no games. (laughs) Practice five days a scrimmage, and that's it. That'd be fun. But anyway, after after the Bobcats, I went back to Appalachian State for one year. And then I went to Wilmington for four after that. And then uh, we turned around and came back to Charlotte after that. So I've been here ever since. Now I'm the assistant GM for the Hornets. So talk about that transition from college to professional basketball. What it's like from a relationship perspective. What it's like just from a, the standpoint of how it becomes much more of a business. Yeah, it is. It's uh, people are kind of, I would say, on their own in the, in the, pro, the professional side. Uh, it's, they had their own daily lives, their family and everything. The thing that I, what I missed when I was here for those two years is a relationship with the players. There's nothing like, I always, I always love to own a bus or on a plane, uh, in the hotel, in the uh, meeting room. We, we always, I always small talked a lot before we had a serious meeting. I mean, we would, I don't know, we may play some little stupid game or something, or we'd laugh a little bit because I'd put somebody on the spot and have somebody tell a story before we got serious about the game prep or whatever. And I miss those. Those were good times. And uh, to have a young man come in your room and sit down and the issues he was having, the problems he was having, trying to help him out through it, that's that's what I miss, those kind of relationships. Because at the end of the day, victories were important. There's nothing like when a, uh, the best satisfaction I had when a young man called me one time and said, hey, look, Coach, I just want to thank you so much for 
the thought of the day, the emphasis of the day you made before practice. He said, I thought that was so silly at first, but as I got into my relationship with my wife and started having kids, sometimes I would go back to what you would said, the, the emphasis of the day were. And, and, and what I would do, I would take a book, and I would take that book, and I would try to instill it into our season and where I could teach these young men life skills or something just not all in basketball, but there's more important things in life than in the real world. And I just give them quotes here and there. The young man told me, say, hey, I appreciate those times. You know, I got my college degree. I've got a great job. My wife has a job. My kids are doing great. That's the satisfaction I enjoyed. That's what I love more about coaching anything else, to help a young man out and to get him on his way where he's successful in life. Not all the victories are that important, but just to help a young man out was what I, I enjoyed. So when you think about professional sports or, or sports or any business, alignment is critical between ownership, uh, the general manager, and the head coach. So with Michael, talk about how your alignment is, is structured in terms of his involvement, uh, how that works as it relates to you and Mitch, uh, Kupchak being the GM, and how that information gets filtered to the coach, and what responsibility the coach has as it relates to the front office and how he runs, how the coach runs the team. And I think a lot of teams are different in the way they approach uh, how they do that. Our, our mindset is we hire people in positions like James Borrego is our basketball coach, Joe Sharp is a trainer, Adam Linus is the strength coach. They got people underneath them, and we're not going to tell them, you know, play this person more or this guy needs to be in this different role. They make that decision. Michael has the confidence that Mitch and Mitch, uh, Larry, his brother, or run this the right way. Now he makes the final decisions, and then you have Fred Whitfield and James Jordan on the on the business side of things. So, you know, he's got friends or brothers or relatives that he trusts to run the business. So we don't call him every day. Say, hey, look, this is what's going on. If I was him, I wouldn't want to hear that. We've got you up there. Do your job. If you need me, call me. If you need me. And that's that's how we leave it. Now, at the end of the day, if it's a draft pick or it's a big decision, it's his money. He's got to make the he's got to make that final call. So it works great. It, you know, Mitch, oh, you know, what is it, 35 years, whatever it is, experience. And I try to pick his brain every day. Because I, I look at him and you know, sometimes we're watching a game or something, we're watching a guy work out, and I'll ask him a question to see what he's thinking. Because to me, he learned from one of the best. I thought Jerry West, and I've heard people say Jerry West had one of the best eyes of evaluating talent. Mitch was under him for so many years. And so I always ask Mitch a lot of questions about it. So I feel like I'm gaining a great valuable experience just sitting here uh, having Mitch working for him in, in our basketball operations. So when you think about all the ancillary functions that have been added, whether it's on the wellness side, strength and uh, strength, uh, mental nutrition, uh, and then the analytics. How does all that get put together? As it well, really it's I, I've spent time last couple months on on getting people talking to different people on the wellness side, analytics side, looking at different avenues of hiring different people because they, you know, a lot of times people move and they've always said, hey, to get your best raise or to support your family, so always move to a different organization, whatever, to get a better raise. But we've lost some people uh, throughout the years. And the wellness part is interesting. I, you know, I think when I was at Cleveland, I talked to Mitch, they had one trainer and he was in charge of a lot of different things. We've got like seven people down there in the wellness area now. 
seven you know from a physical therapist uh the dry kneeling thing has come a, a big way i mean they, there's a lot of that going on now you have two trainers and then from there you start you go into your strength conditioning coaches all right and then and then you get into your uh nutritionist uh, somebody that talks to these players about what's the proper way to eat and talking to their chefs. And then you get into a, a sleep person. You get into, you know, these guys get proper. Because I, I talk to the sleep people quite often because of travel. I say, hey, this game's going to end at 10 o'clock in Salt Lake City. We got to be in, uh, you know, New York. And, you know, we play there in two days. Should we stay there or should we fly and meal at the game? And then, so I, I get their opinion on this and kind of go with what they say. So the wellness part is really going to another level it's uh and i you know i'm old school a little bit i mean there's different things that you know you just suck it up and you go you know you know what's coming from you you just you do it you know and uh the other part is wellness and uh, analytics uh gosh we we have a team of probably three people right now and you know i love to see uh, bring me everything you got i want to see everything you got give me your numbers i want to see it at the end of the day, though, you don't use them all in your in your. I think the eye, the eye is the best. Your eyesight, what you saw, what you believe in that that's that's the best way to look at it. But yeah, I do like to look at their numbers a little bit. You know, these guys are pretty sharp. One guy we do have played. He did play Division three basketball, so he knows a little bit about the game. Uh, a couple other guys did not. They write code and all this stuff. I, you know, sometimes I go in the office, I see all these numbers on there. I'm like, oh my god, that's headache. You know, it's Chinese arithmetic. I can't figure that out. But so, so how do you distinguish between the analytics you use that you give the coach regarding players and game and game time and on the court, as opposed to drafting and using analytics as part of your your draft? You know what we did, did there? We separated them. We gave him one guy that he has that he can use all the time for his numbers, and then we took a, and we took another guy and we use him upstairs for us, and then we got one guy that goes in between a little bit with him. So that's kind of how we separate. So he has his numbers on players now. We'll you know we'll ask him and say, hey, we noticed that. You know, I'll give you an example. That's I'm not a big fan of fouling somebody quickly on a break. There's numbers. There's a four and five or three on two. I, I just think you play it out. You don't get a person in foul trouble. But he, the analytics show you, you do that. You better odds. You don't give as many points. And I, okay, that's that's fair. But I'm surprised the league is not going to do something about that. But you know why? Because you're taking away a highlight situation. You're taking away that these young kids they love to get these phones and they're not going to watch a game. You're only going to watch about a minute of highlights. You're taking away a critical highlight when you foul on a break there. So I wouldn't be surprised the league comes down on a harder penalty for that. Talk about one of the most uh, the real controversial things where the NFL has just decided mm-hmm. that if teams uh, can't uh, field based on the vaccine, that they're going to forfeit, lose the game, lose pay. Where do you think the uh, NBA is going to come out of that? They could come similar to them. I mean, they they could come similar. I, I, I was driving in this morning. Um, is a Hopkins receiver for Buffalo, I believe, and he came out. He was pretty strong about his feelings. Um, you know, we were last in the league last year of vaccinations. We were last. I think we had maybe six guys on the team out of the four to fifteen. Mitch and I, I, I can't tell you how many times we we would talk about it. You know, we would bring it out and, and say how important it is. But at the end of the day, it's it's their decision. 
I mean, it's everything they want to do. What may happen? I think I think they may make it so difficult for the people that aren't vaccinated, you know, unvaccinated people that they'll make them jump through a lot more hurdles uh, to practice or to play a game. I don't know. Will the interesting thing to me? I think will will some of these power five, power five conferences do what the NFL did? SEC, you know, ACC will they join? Do something like that? So we're in an interesting time right now. It it hurt, it hurt us last year. It hurt us. We had a young man that did, was not vaccinated. He had to sit 14 days. If we'd have had him, we, we might have been a higher seed and could have helped us a little bit. So it, it hit us pretty hard. And then the same young man would probably be an Olympic team right now if he'd been vaccinated. Talk about, as you look at the NBA and what's happening to the game, what you see on the court and what the future looks like from your perspective. You know what? It's interesting, but I, I was not look at it. Mitch and I talk about, and Michael, we talk about this. Coach Smith had one one really big pet peeve he had on offense. Two people don't come to the ball. You know, he did not like two people come to the ball at all. What do you have now? You have pick and roll all the single time. Everything's a pick and roll, pick and roll, and it's spacing. It's you know, you just sit guys in the corner. Coach Smith was about movement. You know, we had a we had we had one play. And as a basic offense, had three different things you do out of it. And then we did what we call passing game and motion offense. Passing game, you moved. You moved four and five man with set screens. They were post, you know. And then uh, motion, you set screens. And, and so it, it, it was, it says now is you got guys standing corner. Analytics tell you if you got guys in corner can shoot, that spaces it out. That's the shortest distance. That's where you put people. The numbers have gone from a, I remember the three point line came out. The number to hit was 33%. Now analytics tell me it's moving to about 36 up to 37 now. So those numbers are, are changing. And so now you're bringing two guys to the ball, the pick and roll. You got the spacing. You know, the the big man now that sets screens, big hoss in there, he's kind of a dinosaur because if he can't roll like Capella and dunk or if he can't pick and pop, what good is he now for a lot of these coaches? So the game has really changed. And I – I saw it coming a little bit back in, you know, probably when I was coaching Tennessee. And I'll tell you why, because Billy Donovan at the time started running a lot of pick and roll stuff with the Roberson, Bonner, those guys. That's where it first started. And uh, Matt Bonner was a heck of a pick and pop guy. And so what I was had to do was we couldn't call things out on a run a lot. Our guys weren't very good at that. We tried to practice. So I would say, hey, this is how we're going to fend it right now. If they run that screen roll up top, we are going to hedge it hard and everybody rotate. Well, once Billy saw us do that once or twice and he make adjustments, then I would just hope for the next media timeout so they wouldn't hurt us more. I'd change up how we guarded after that. So I saw the pick and roll coming back then in the early 2000s. What's your sense? Uh, Milwaukee just wins uh, the NBA championship and did it very differently than many of the teams in the past that are going out to recruit high-profile people, guys are picking the teams they want to go to, whether it's the Nets, whether it's the Lakers, you know, whether it happens to be the uh, Clippers. But Milwaukee signs the guy they draft, and then they kind of fill it in around in a small market town. So, I mean, how do you look at that? I, I was happy for them. Let me say that. I was happy because I look at, we're a small market team too, and I was happy for those guys winning it. I mean, Giannis was, what, 15th pick. And it's taking him time. I mean, I saw a stat. Uh, I don't know what year it was. Might have been 14. I guess Giannis and Milton won 22 games together. Or what it, might have been Chris Milton's first year at Milwaukee. It was a very low number. But what they did, I thought 
John Horst and Milton Newton did a really good thing by Drew Holiday. It gave them that extra ball handler. It gave them somebody else that they, those two guys are on, they could score. And I thought Drew Holiday was a big, big fit for this group. And then you add in, you know, Bobby Porter's plays well. Pat Collington plays well. Lopez, you know, just a pick and pop guy out there. He's got length. Uh, so I was, I was happy. I mean, down 0-2 and a win four straight, that was tough. And in that city, you saw how, what's it called, Deer, whatever, Deer, Deerfield, Park. Deer Nation. Yeah, Deer Park. I mean, good night. I mean, we were laughing about it. My son and I were like, they said 65. It looked like 165 people out there cheering. No, it was crazy. Yeah. And we happened to, to go up there, uh, my son and I, for an appointment. And we're in a, a couple of the bars. And the bar was like being at the game. I mean, that it was, <laughs> I mean they stopped serving food because everybody was drinking. I mean, it was, <laughs> yeah. it was absolutely crazy. So a, a, as we come to the end and we think about your career and the things you're the most proud of, what would you say the one or two things are that as you look back that you really feel good about? Oh, and then you got to talk about your family first. I mean, I've been blessed to marry for 31 years. Uh, three beautiful kids, three grand grandkids. Uh, my family is, was very involved. My wife played college basketball at a small school called Mars Hill. It's university now. And so they really got into it. There's one thing that, I, you know, you pick apart from different people. And there's one guy, Les Robson told me one thing. He said, let me tell you something. When you come home at night, your wife is going to ask you how your day was. How was practice? How was your day at office? And, you're going, you know, or how the game, you lost the game, whatever. You can't just tune them out. You're going to have to explain to them how the day went, you know, and, you know, what happened at practice, what, how you lost the ball game, how you won, you know. That's something I always remember. So by doing that, the kids would hear my conversations with Jan, and all of a sudden this whole family kind of gets into basketball. Jan, she misses the coaching part. To this day, she does that. She liked to have that team. Whether she they brought them over to the house for dinner, she loved to cook. She had it down pat. That was something she loved to do so much. And uh, so I tried to get involved with the Hornets and everything. But Rob playing at High Point—that's kind of her team. She likes to go up there for that. And then, uh, but yeah, I've got her to get more involved in what we're doing here in the Hornets. So what I do, I share as much as I can information with her. But it's and she looks at it, she says, you know, you're kind of a more of an administrator now some things you have to do because, you know, I tell her, I'm trying to get this guy signed at this position. You know, we've got all this stuff. And so I don't, I think she likes college basketball a little bit better, <laughs> but the thing that gets me more than anything else, the excitement, like I said earlier is um, not so much the wins and losses is teaching a young man life skills, you know, building that relationship with them and seeing them have a successful family. That's, that's, that's something I cherish a lot. Well, I really appreciate you coming back on. And yeah, <laughs> not a problem. Really explaining this incredible journey you've had with this, uh, your own journey, but also how you and Michael Jordan have been tied to the hip ever since high school and how that relationship and his loyalty and your loyalty uh, have resulted in, in, in just this incredible friendship. 41 years. 41 years. 41 years, yeah. That's yeah. Well, again, uh, thank you. I appreciate thank you for uh, coming back and visiting. Thanks.